Okay, Iggy, Chapter 9, End of Life Care. Overview of Death and Dying. Although dying is part of the normal life cycle, it is often feared as a time of pain and suffering. For the family, death of a member is a life-altering loss that can cause significant and prolonged suffering. As sad and difficult as the death may be, the experience of dying need not be physically painful for the patient or emotionally agonizing for the family. The dying process is an opportunity to change a potentially difficult situation into one that is tolerable, peaceful, and meaningful for the patient and the family left behind. Because nurses spend more time with patients than do any other health care providers, it is the nurse, nurse who often has the greatest impact on a person's experience with death. It is the nurse who can impact the dying process to prevent a death without dignity, or bad death from occurring, while striving to promote a peaceful and meaningful death, good death. To accomplish this, the nurse needs to have knowledge of end-of-life care, compassion, advocacy, and competent communication skills. The Perception of Death in the United States The U.S. healthcare system is based on the acute care model, which is focused on prevention, early detection, and cure of disease. This focus and the advan advances in survival rates for once deadly diseases have made it difficult for many patients and healthcare providers to accept death as an outcome of many health problems. Many view death as a failure. These views have led to a major deficiency in the care and quality of life for many Americans at the end of life. In 1995, a landmark study highlighted the poor quality of dying the hospitalized patients experienced at the end of their lives. The study to understand prognoses and preferences for outcomes and risks of treatment or support showed that more than 50% of a sample of 9,105 hospitalized patients with life-threatening disease had moderate to severe pain during the last days of their lives. In addition, they did not have their wishes met, even when their wishes had been made known. As a result of the support study, the Institute of Medicine, IOM, studied death in America. The Institute recommended that a major initiative be undertaken to improve care at the end of life with the outcome of facilitating good death. A good death is one that is free from avoidable distress and suffering for patients, families, and caregivers in agreement with patients and families' wishes and consistent with c clinical practice standards. Pain, not having one's wishes followed at the end of one's life, isolation, abandonment, and constant agonizing about losses associated with death are characteristics of a bad death. In response to this initiative, core curricula on end-of-life care were de developed and implemented to educate medical and nursing students, physicians, and nurses on how to provide quality and end-of-life care. In 1998, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, AACN, published Peaceful Death, which outlined 15 undergraduate nursing competencies for providing quality end-of-life care, Table 9-1. Pathophysiology of Dying Death is defined as the cessation of integrated tissue and organ function, manifested by cessation of heartbeat, absence of spontaneous respirations, or irreversible brain dysfunction. It generally occurs as a result of an illness or trauma that overwhelms the compensatory mechanisms of the body, eventually leading to cardiopulmonary failure slash arrest. 
Direct causes of death include heart failure secondary to cardiac dysrhythmias, myocardial infarction, or cardiogenic shock, respiratory failure secondary to pulmonary embolism, heart failure, pneumonia, lung disease, or respiratory arrest caused by increased intracranial pressure. Shock secondary to infection, blood loss, or organ dysfunction, which leads to lack of blood flow, i.e. perfusion, to vital organs. Inadequate perfusion to body tissues deprives cells of their source of oxygen, which leads to anaerobic metabolism with acidosis, hyperkalemia, and tissue ischemia. Dramatic changes in vital organs lead to the release of toxic metabolites and destructive enzymes, referred to as multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. MODS. As illness or organ damage progresses, the syndrome occurs with renal and liver failure. Renal or liver failure can also begin the dying process. When the body is hypoxic and acidotic, a lethal dysrhythmia such as ventricular fibrillation or asystole can occur, which ultimately leads to the cessation of cardiac output. Shortly after cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest occurs. When respiratory arrest occurs first, cardiac arrest follows within minutes. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, is a procedure that involves forcing air into the lungs of the patient who has stopped breathing and giving chest compressions in the absence of a carotid pulse. By law, healthcare providers must initiate CPR for a person who is not breathing or is pulseless unless that person has a do not resuscitate DNR order. Although CPR may be effective in patients with reversible illness or single organ dysfunction, patients with terminal cancer, multi-system organ failure, and renal failure rarely survive after a cardiac arrest. Table 9-1, Peaceful Death, AACN, Undergraduate Nursing Competencies. 1. Recognize dynamic changes in population demographics, healthcare, economics, and service delivery that necessitate improved professional preparation for end-of-life care. 2. Promote the provision of comfort care to the dying as an active, desirable, and important skill and an integral component of nursing care. 3. Communicate effectively and compassionately with the patient, family, and healthcare team members about end-of-life issues. 4. Recognize one's own attitudes, feelings, values, and expectations about death and the individual, culture, and spiritual diversity existing in these beliefs and customs. 5. Demonstrate respect for the patient's views and wishes during end-of-life care. 6. Collaborate with inter interdisciplinary team members while implementing nursing role in end-of-life care. 7. Use scientifically based standard, standardized tools to assess symptoms experienced by patients at the end of life. 8. Use data from symptom assessment to plan and intervene in symptom management using state-of-the-art traditional approaches. 9. Evaluate the impact of traditional com complementary and technologic therapies on patient-centered outcomes. 10. Assess and treat multiple dimensions including physical, psychological, social, and spiritual needs to improve quality of care at the end of life. 11. Assist the patient, family, colleagues, and oneself to cope with suffering, grief, loss, and bereavement in end-of-life care. 12. Apply legal and ethical principles in the analysis of complex issues in end-of-life care, recognizing the influence of personal values, professional 
codes, and patient preferences. 13. Identify barriers and facilitators to patients and caregivers' effective use of resources. 14. Demonstrate skill at implementing a plan for improved end-of-life care within a dynamic and complex healthcare delivery system. 15. Apply knowledge gained from palliative care research to end-of-life education and care. American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Incidents of death. In 2004, over 2 million deaths occurred in the United States. The most common causes of death in the United States are diseases of the heart, followed by cancer. Of all people who die, only a few die suddenly and unexpectedly. Most people die after a long period of illness, e.g. cardiac, renal, respiratory disease, with gradual deterioration until an active dying phase before the death. Most people who die are older than 65. About 25% of all deaths in the United States take place at home, but this figure varies among states. About 75% of deaths in the United States occur in hospitals or nursing homes. In a review of published research, found, found that deaths occurring in nursing homes were problematic for the residents, family members, and nursing home staff. For example, many residents needlessly suffered from pain and other symptoms associated with dying. This problem is probably because of inadequate understanding of how to ensure a peaceful death. Planning for end of life. Advanced directives. An advanced directive is a written document prepared by a co competent person that specifies what, if any, extraordinary actions a person would want when he or she can no longer make decisions about personal health care. Advanced directives such as the Durable Power of Attorney, DPOA, for health care and the Living Will ideally are completed long before a medical crisis. A DPOA for health care is a legal document in which a person appoints someone else to make his or her health care decisions in the event he or she becomes incapable of making decisions. A Living Will is also a legal document that instructs physicians and family members about what life-sustaining treatment a person does or does not want to at some future time if he or she becomes unable to make decisions. The Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990 requires that all patients admitted to any health care agency be asked if they have written advanced directives. Those who do not have advanced directives should be given information about the process and the implications of having or not having these in place and should be assisted in drafting them. Each agency has its own policies and procedures to direct this process. Advanced directives vary from state to state but are readily available through Caring Connections, an online program of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Advanced directives guide physicians in planning care for seriously ill people. If the patient has advanced or terminal disease and has indicated that he or she does not want cardiopulmonary resuscitation CPR, performed, then the physician can initiate a do not resuscitate DNR order with confidence that this is the person's wish. However, most Americans do not have advanced directives in place and many physicians do not talk to patients about their wishes for end-of-life care. Nurses are often in the position of initiating discussions with patients about their wishes regarding end-of-life care especially when their condition declines quickly. Be sure to communicate and document any discussion regarding a person's wishes for end-of-life care. Desired Outcomes for End-of-Life Care 
The desired outcomes for a patient near the end of life are identification of patient needs, control of symptoms of distress, promotion of meaningful interactions between the patient and family, facilitation of a peaceful death. Interventions that attend to the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual needs of patients require an interdisciplinary approach. The coordinated interdisciplinary care of hospice is the most successful approach to end-of-life care to date. Although the perception of hospice is that it provides care for the dying, the emphasis of hospice care is on its provision of quality of life. Hospice and Palliative Care The concept of hospice in the United States came about as a grassroots effort in response to the unmet needs of terminally ill people. As both a philosophy and a system of care, hospice care uses an interdisciplinary approach to assess and address the holistic needs of patients and families to facilitate quality of life and a peaceful death. This holistic approach neither hastens nor postpones death, but provides relief of symptoms experienced by the dying patient. Hospice systems of care are provided in a variety of settings. They are often affiliated with home care agencies, providing services to patients at home or in long-term care facilities. Some communities also have hospice houses, which admit patients in the terminal phase of their lives and provide a comfortable place and care. In other cases, some hospitals and hospice units are dedicated hospice beds, or in other cases, some hospitals have hospice units or dedicated hospice beds. The Medicare hospice benefit serves as a guide for hospice care in the United States. This benefit pays for hospice services for Medicare recipients who have a prognosis of six months or less to live and who agree to forego curative treatment for their terminal illness. Historically, those with terminal cancer have been the most common recipients of hospice care. However, those with other life-limiting conditions and life expectancies of six months or less are also appropriate for hospice. Examples of those conditions are end-stage heart failure and end-stage cirrhosis. Guidelines are available to assist healthcare providers and families in identifying who is entitled to hospice care under Medicare. Patients who are hospice appropriate but do not qualify for Medicare may use benefits through private insurance or managed care. In some states, medical assistance, or Medicaid, pays for hospice care. Because hospice benefits and care generally require a prognosis of six months or less, its use is limited. Unfortunately, the many people with chronic, serious illness whose prognosis may be longer than six months often do not have access to the support services that work so well within the hospice model. In an attempt to address this need, the concept of palliative care is being used to address the holistic needs of chronically, seriously ill patients who have not who may not be hospice appropriate. Palliative care is both a philosophy of care and an organized, structured system of delivering care for people with a life-threatening illness. The goal of palliative care is to prevent and relieve suffering and to support the best possible quality of life for patients and their families, regardless of the stage of the disease or the need for other therapies. Figure 9-1 uh, shows an example of a durable power of attorney, DPOA, for healthcare.
Symptoms at End of Life Overview As death nears, patients often have signs and symptoms of decline in physical function manifested as weakness, anorexia, and changes in cardiovascular function, breathing patterns, and GI and genitourinary function. As death nears, peripheral circulation decreases and the patient's skin often becomes cold, mottled, and cyanotic. Blood pressure decreases and often is only palpable. The dying person's pulse may increase in rate, becoming irregular in rhythm, gradually decrease, and stop. Changes in breathing pattern are common, with breaths becoming very shallow and rapid. Periods of apnea and Cheyenne-Stokes respirations, which is apnea alternating with periods of rapid breathing, are also common. Death has taken place when respirations and heartbeats cease. Although these symptoms of physical decline are often disturbing to patients and families, they generally do not cause physical discomfort to the patient. However, symptoms of distress such as pain, dyspnea, agitation, nausea, and vomiting can also occur, and these should be treated with, with medication. When students have access to health care providers knowledgeable in palliative care, symptoms of distress are effectively controlled in most cases. Patient-Centered Collaborative Care Assessment Obtain information about the patient's diagnosis, past medical history, and recent state of health to identify the risks for symptoms of distress at end of life. For example, people with lung cancer, cardiac failure, or chronic respiratory disease are at high risk for respiratory distress and dyspnea near death. Those with brain tumors are at risk for seizure activity or at risk for seizure activity. Patients with tumors near major arteries, e.g. head and neck cancer, are at risk for hemorrhage. Those who have been experiencing pain often continue to have pain at the end of life, which may increase, decrease, or remain at the same level of intensity. Physical Assessment Clinical Manifestations Near the end of life, the patient may become weak and drowsy, often sleeping most of the time. Eventually, the person can become unresponsive. As the patient's ability to talk diminishes, it is difficult to assess his or her perception of symptoms. When caring for those who are unable to communicate with their distress or needs, it is essential that healthcare providers identify alternative ways to assess symptoms of distress. Teach family caregivers to watch closely for objective signs of discomfort, e.g. restlessness, grimacing, moaning, and identify when these symptoms occur in relation to positioning, movement, medication, or other external stimuli. Although patient's point of view is the most valid indicator of comfort or distress, the family's perception of symptoms is also important. Family caregivers, health care providers, and dying patients may differ in their perceptions of symptoms in terms of intensity, significance, and meaning. Whereas health care providers are often more able to identify symptoms of distress, Families are often more knowledgeable about the patient's habits and preferences. Incorporate all pertinent information into the plan for symptom management and work with patients and families toward a common outcome. Chart 9-1 Patient and Family Education Guide Common Physical Signs and Symptoms of Approaching Death Coolness of Extremities Circulation to the extremities is decreased. The skin may become mottled or discolored. Cover the person with a blanket. 
Do not use an electric blanket, hot water bottle, electric heating pad, or hair dryer to warm the person. Increased sleeping. Metabolism is decreased. Spend time sitting quietly with the person. Do not force the person to stay awake. Talk to the person as normally as you normally would, even if he or she does not respond. Fluid and food decrease. Metabolic needs have decreased. Do not force the person to eat or drink. Offer small sips of liquids or ice chips at frequent intervals if the person is alert and able to swallow. Use moist swabs to keep the mouth and lips moist and comfortable. Coat the lips with lip balm. Incontinence. The perineal muscles relax. Keep the perineal area clean and dry. Use disposable underpads, chucks, and disposable undergarments. If the person would be more comfortable, consider a Foley catheter. Congestion and gurgling. The person is unable to cough up secretions effectively. Position the patient on his or her side. Administer medications to decrease the production of secretions. Breathing pattern change. Slowed circulation to the brain may cause the breathing pattern to become irregular in brief periods of no breathing or shallow breathing. Elevate the person's head. Position the person on his or her side. Disorientation. Decreased metabolism and slowed circulation to the brain may occur. Identify yourself whenever you communicate with the person. Reorientate the person, reorient the person as needed. Speak softly, clearly, and truthfully. Restlessness. Decreased metabolism and slowed circulation of the brain may occur. Play soothing music and use aromatherapy. Do not restrain the person. Massage the person's forehead. Reduce the number of people in the room. Talk quietly. Keep the room dimly lit. Keep the noise level to a minimum. Consider sedation if other methods do not work. I'm out of the chart now. Assess any symptom of distress in terms of intensity, frequency, duration, quality, exasperating, worsening, and relieving factors, and effect, and effect on the patient's comfort when awake or asleep. A method for rating the intensity of symptoms should be used to facilitate ongoing assessments and evaluate treatment response. A rating scale of 0 to 10 is commonly used, with 0 indicating no distress and 10 indicating, worse, 10 indicating the worst possible distress. The intensity of the symptoms of the symptom before and after an intervention, e.g. medication, is documented by the nurse or the family caregiver and is used daily to evaluate the patient's overall comfort. See Chapter 5 for a complete discussion of pain assessment. Psychosocial Assessment People facing death may have coping difficulties, fear and anxiety with regard to their decline and or impending death. Cultural considerations, values, and religious beliefs of the patient and family should be assessed for their influ influence on the dying experience, control of symptoms, and family bereavement. Families of people near death are also likely to manifest fear, anxiety, and knowledge deficits regarding the process of death and their role in providing care. Assess the patient and family members for their expe expectations regarding death and for fear and anxiety. Families may have a preconceived notion about the dying process and may or may not, that may or may not be realistic. Chart 9-2 
describes the m common emotional signs of approaching death that the nurse should explain to the patient, family, or significant others. Interventions. Disturbing symptoms reported by patients and their families as death nears include weakness, pain, dyspnea, nausea and vomiting, restlessness, and agitation. Interventions are aimed at promoting comfort and controlling symptoms. With the exception of weakness, these symptoms usually require drug therapy to provide relief and or prevalent reoccurrence. A variety of complementary and alternative therapies may also relieve these symptoms. Chart 9-2, Patient and Family Education Guide. Common emotional signs of approaching death. Withdrawal. The person is preparing to let go from surroundings and relationships. Vision-like experiences. The person may talk to people you cannot see or hear and see objects and places not visible to you. These are not hallucinations or drug reactions. Do not deny or argue with what the person claims. Affirm the experience. Letting go. The person may become agitated or continue to perform repetitive tasks. Often this indicates that something is unresolved or is preventing the person from letting go. As difficult as it may be to do or say, a dying person takes on a more peaceful demeanor when loved ones are able to say things such as, it's okay to go, we'll be alright. Saying goodbye. When the person is ready to die and you are ready to let go, saying goodbye is important for both of you. Touching, hugging, crying, and saying, I love you, thank you, I'm sorry, or I'll miss you so much, are all natural expressions of sadness and loss. Verbalizing these sentiments can make, can bring comfort both to the dying person and to those left behind. Weakness management. Patients commonly experience weakness and f fatigue as death nears. Weakness combined with decreased neurologic function may impair the ability to swallow. Once the patient is unable to swallow, oral intake should stop. Warn families of the risk for aspiration and reassure them that anorexia, anorexia is normal at this stage. Giving fluid or food can actually lead to discomfort. Families may have great difficulty accepting that their loved ones are not being fed and may request that IV fluids be started. With great sensitivity, reinforce that the cessation of food and liquids and dehydration are natural processes. Inform families that giving fluids can actually increase discomfort in a person with multi-system slowdown. Discomfort from fluid replacement could lead to respiratory secretions and distress, increased GI secretions, nausea, vomiting, edema, and ascites. Most experts believe that dehydration in the last hours of life, i.e. terminal dehydration, does not cause distress and may stimulate endorphin release that promotes a patient's sense of well-being. One side effect of dehydration that may be uncomfortable is dry lips and mouth. Apply emollient to the lips and moisten the mouth and lips with applicators to help prevent and or relieve this symptom. Impaired swallowing near death prevents, presents a problem for drug therapy. Although some pills may be crushed, drugs such as sustained release capsules, capsules should not be taken apart. Reassess the need for each medication. Collaborate with the prescriber about discontinuing drugs that are not needed to control pain, dyspnea, 
agitation, nausea, vomiting, cardiac workload, or seizures. In collaboration with a pharmacist experienced in palliative care, identify alternative routes and or alternative medications to maintain control of symptoms. Choose the least invasive route such as oral, buccal, mucosa, transdermal, or rectal. Many oral drugs can be given rectally. The subcutaneous or IV routes are used only if necessary, and the IM route is almost never used at the end of life. These methods are invasive and painful and can cause infection. Pain management. Pain is the symptom that dying patients fear the most. Although it is not universal, this fear is common and has many possible causes. Diseases, such as cancer, often cause tumor pain as a result of the infiltration of cancer cells into organs, nerves, and bones. Other causes of pain in dying patients include osteoarthritis, muscle spasms, and stiff joints secondary to immobility. Patients who have had their pain controlled with long-acting opioids should continue their scheduled doses of opioids to prevent pain reoccurrence. Depending on the brand of long-acting opioid, oral capsules may be given rectally. Same dose and same capsule when swallowing is impaired. Increases in pain require immediate relief analgesics, e.g. morphine sulfate immediate release. Morphine sulfate elixir can be given sublingually, rectally, or via the buccal mucosa. It is quick-acting, effective, and safe to administer even to comatose patients. Some experts in palliative care recommend discontinuing routine doses of opioids as patients become, patients become oliguric, oliguric or aneuric. The rationale for this measure is to decrease the risk of delirium that may occur as a result of an increase in serum metabolite levels when renal excretion is reduced. Chapter 5 describes in detail the management of chronic, malignant, and non-malignant pain. Complementary and alternative therapies. In addition to drug therapy to manage chronic pain, non-pharmacologic interventions are often integrated into the pain management plan. Some common approaches are presented here, and chapters 2 and 5 provide additional information in detail. Massage has been shown to decrease pain in people with cancer and it is one of the most popular complementary services being offered to patients at end of life. This technique involves the manipulation of a person's muscles and soft tissue, which improves circulation and promotes relaxation. Patients who, have frail, who are frail may not tolerate an extensive treatment, but may benefit from a short treatment to sites of their choice. In working with patients with cancer, light pressure is best and deep or intense pressure should be avoided. Massage is contraindicated over the sites of tissue damage, e.g. open wounds, tissue undergoing radiation therapy. In patients with bleeding disorders and in those who are uncomfortable with touch. Music therapy is another complementary therapy used by people near end of life that has been shown to decrease pain. The nurse arranges for music to meet the patient's preferences. The music promotes relaxation and therefore may reduce comfort. Therapeutic touch, which involves moving one's hands through the patient's energy field, has also been shown to relieve pain. 
This approach requires specialized training in the method. Reiki therapy is another type of energy therapy being evaluated for its role in pain and symptom management. Use of Reiki requires access to Reiki a Reiki practitioner who is trained in the method. Aromatherapy can be used in conjunction with other treatments to relieve pain near end of life. Lavender, caps, capsicum, bergamot, chamomile, rose, ginger, rosemary, lemongrass, sage, and camphor have been recommended for use in palliative care. Aromatherapy promotes relaxation and reduces anxiety, a contributing factor to pain. Dyspnea management. Dyspnea is a, a subjective experience in which the patient has an uncomfortable feeling of breathlessness, which is often described as terrifying. It can manifest itself as air hunger, copious secretions, cough, chest pain, or fatigue. Dyspnea is a common symptom of distress near the end of life. Many patients, families, and healthcare providers consider this to be the worst symptom of distress near death. Dyspnea can be directly related to the primary diagnosis, e.g. lung cancer, breast cancer, coronary artery disease, secondary to the primary diagnosis, e.g. pleural effusion, metastasis to the lung or pleura, related to the treatment of the primary disease, e.g. heart failure caused by chemotherapy, constrictive pericarditis caused by radiation therapy, anemia related to chemotherapy, unrelated to the primary disease, e.g. pneumonia. Depending on the cause, the pathophysiology of dyspnea can involve obstructive, restrictive, or vascular disturbances in the airways with tumor or nodal involvement, pulmonary congestion secondary to fluid overload and or cardiac dysfunction, bronchoconstriction and bronchospasm, as seen with respiratory infection, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or airway blockage by a tumor, decreased hemoglobin carrying capacity, as with anemia, hyperventilation secondary to neuromuscular disease with limited movement of the diaphragm. Diagnostic testing to identify the cause of dyspnea is usually inappropriate at end of life. Treatment is determined based on physical assessment and knowledge of the underlying condition. Pharmacologic interventions should begin early in the course of dyspnea near death. Non-pharmacologic interventions can be used in conjunction with, but not in place of, drug therapy. Opioids such as morphine elixir are the standard treatment for dyspnea near death. They work by 1. Altering the perception of air hunger, reducing anxiety and associated oxygen consumption, and 2. Reducing pulmonary congestion by dilating pulmonary blood vessels. Patients who have not been receiving opioids are given starting doses of 5 to 6 milligrams orally. Those who have taken morphine or other opioids for pain may need much higher doses of morphine, up to 50% more than, usual, than their usual dose, for relief of dyspnea. If IV access is available, healthcare providers may prescribe 1 to 2 milligrams of morphine to be given every 5 to 10 minutes until relief is obtained. However, IV access for dying patients is not started unless it is absolutely necessary. Bronchodilators such as albuterol or 
hypertrophium bromide via a metered dose inhaler, MDI, or nebulizer may be given for symptoms of bronchospasms, heard as wheezes. Corticosteroids, such as prednisone or dexamethasone, may also be given for bronchospasm and inflammatory problems within and, ex and exterior to the lung. Superior vena cava syndrome and lymphagitis carcinomatosis causing dyspnea may also respond to corticosteroids. People who have fluid overload with dyspnea, crackles to auscultation, peripheral edema, and other signs of heart failure may be given a diuretic, such as furosemide, Lasix, to decrease blood volume, reduce vascular congestion, and reduce the workload of the heart. Furosemide can be administered by mouth, intravenously, subcutaneously, or intramuscularly. IV administration, which is effective within minutes, may be preferred for heart failure and pulmonary edema to promote comfortable breathing. Antibiotics may be indicated for dyspnea from a respiratory infection. A thorough workup of, for a respiratory infection is not appropriate when death is imminent. However, if signs of, or symptoms of respiratory infection are present, i.e. fever, adventitious breath sounds, congested cough, along with the dyspnea, a trial of an appropriate antibiotic may be considered to make the patient comfortable. Secretions in the respiratory tract and oral cavity may contribute to dyspnea near death. Loud, wet respirations, referred to as the death rattle, are dis disturbing to family and caregivers even when they do not seem to cause dyspnea or respiratory distress. Reposition the patient onto one side to reduce gurgling and place a towel under his or her mouth to collect secretions. Anticholinergics such as trans, a transdermal or subcutaneous scopolamine, reduce the production of secretions. Oral pharyngeal suctioning is not recommended for loud secretions in the bronchi or oral pharynx because it is not effective and may only agitate the patient. Sedatives such as benzodiazepines are used when morphine does not fully control the patient's dyspnea. Lorazepam, or Ativan, 0.5 mg, is given orally or sublingually every four hours as needed or around the clock. Oxygen therapy for dyspnea near death has not been established as a, a standard of care for all patients. However, those who do not respond promptly to morphine or other drugs should be tried on oxygen, 2 to 6 liters by nasal cannula, to assess its effect. If it provides relief, oxygen should be continued. Non-pharmacologic interventions include altering the environment to facilitate the circulation of cool air, e.g. via air conditioning and fan, applying wet cloths on the patient's face, positioning the patient to facilitate chest expansion, intervening to conserve the patient's energy through frequent rest periods, encouraging imagery and deep breathing, Positioning the patient with the head of the bed elevated and the upper body supported to facilitate diaphragmatic movement can be accomplished with a hospital bed or pillows or with the patient in a chair. Insertion of a Foley catheter to avoid the need for exertion 
with voiding may be a comfort measure if the patient or family agrees. Nausea and vomiting management. Although not as common as uh, a problem as pain or dyspnea, nausea and vomiting are thought to occur in almost half of terminally ill patients during the last week of life. It is particularly prevalent in patients with acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, or breast, stomach, or gynecologic cancers. Common causes of nausea and vomiting at the end of life include urema, hypercalcemia, increased intracranial pressure from brain tumors, vagal stimulation secondary, secondary to oral candida, stretching of the hepatic capsule, constipation or impaction, bowel obstruction. If constipation is identified as the cause, a, bio, a, a biphosphate anemia, anema, enema, <laughs> a biphosphate enema is administered to re release stool quickly. If stool is, the, is in the rectum, cannot be evacuated, a mineral oil enema followed by gentle disimpaction may relieve the patient's distress. Nausea and vomiting related to other causes can be controlled by one or more antiemetic agents. Combinations of antiemetics as rectal, rectal suppositories, gels, or oral tro troches, troches can be tried and individualized for maximum relief and control. In addition to medications, be sure to remove sources of odors and keep the room temperature at a level that the patient desires. Dietary changes may also be needed to decrease nausea and vomiting. Coordinate the diet with the nutritionist. Complementary and alternative therapies. Aromatherapy using peppermint and rosewood has been found to be helpful in relieving nausea. Aromatherapy use, using chamomile, camphor, fennel, Lavender, peppermint, and rose may reduce or relieve vomiting. Restlessness and agitation management. Agitation at the end of life first requires assessing the pain for pain or urinary retention, constipation, or another reversible cause. If constipation is ruled out as a cause, and if analgesia and catheterization do not relieve the restlessness, sedatives should be administered. Benzodiazepines such as lorazepam, ativan, elixir, or a tablet, 1 to 2 milligrams, dissolved in 0.5 milliliters of water, can be placed against the buccal mucosa. Most patients become more relaxed with 2 to 10 milligrams in 24 hours. To prevent agitation, ativan should be given every 3 to 4 hours around the clock. If paradoxical agitation occurs, the, the lorazepam is discontinued and neuroleptic such as haloperidol how, how, per 0.5 to 2 milligrams IV subcutaneous or rectally is usually given. Complementary and alternative therapies. Music therapy may produce relaxation by quieting the mind and removing a patient's inner restlessness. Aromatherapy with chamomile has been used to overcome anxiety, anger, tension, stress, and insomnia by in dying patients. Seizure management. Seizures are uncommon at end of life, but may occur with brain tumors, advanced AIDS, and pre-existing seizure disorders. If patients have been taking anti 
epileptic drugs, AEDs, and can no longer swallow them, or if they are at risk for seizures, around-the-clock medication to maintain a high seizure threshold should be given. Benzodiazepines, such as diazepam, Valium, or lorazepam, Ativan, are the drugs of choice. For home use, rectal diazepam gel or sublingual lorazepam oral solution, 2 mg per milliliter, is preferred. Barbiturates, such as phenobarbital, 60 to 120 mg rectally, intravenously, or intramuscularly, are alternatives if necessary. Management of the refractory symptoms of distress. A small percentage of patients experiencing symptoms of distress that are refractory, resistant to treatment, near the end of life, they may require such high doses of analgesics that sedation occurs as a side effect, or they may actually need to be sedated to control symptoms of distress. Although sedation is not ideal, its occurrence as a side effect of treatment for symptoms of distress at the end of life may be acceptable if there is no alternative for comfort. It is important that healthcare providers and the public understand that adequate symptom management may at times result in sedation. The sedation that occurs is a side effect of treatment. It is not a treatment goal or an effect meant to hasten death. Drug therapy for symptoms of distress at the end of life is guided by protocols using doses of medication that are considered safe. These guidelines and protocols are used with the intention of alleviating suffering, not hastening death. Although it is true that patients are more likely to receive higher doses of both opioids and sedatives as they get closer to death, there is no evidence that increases in dose of opioids or sedatives hasten death. Despite this fact, some healthcare providers may continue to express concern that opioids or benzodiazepines cause death. Healthcare providers with this concern should be reminded that an increased risk of earlier death counts little against the benefit of pain relief and painless death in a person who faces imminent death from progression of a primary disease. The ethical responsibility of the nurse is caring, in caring for patients near death is to follow guidelines for drug use, to manage symptoms, and to facilitate prompt and effective symptom management. Psychosocial management. The personal experience of dying or of losing a loved one through death can be extremely difficult but unexpected deaths, particularly in young people, tend to be most traumatic for families. When a person has a chronic life-threatening disease, he or she and the family often have some knowledge of the expected outcome. This knowledge and the gift of time may provide patients and families the opportunity to make their wishes known and develop plans of care consistent with their values and needs. Whereas death is the termination of life, dying is a process. People facing death may demonstrate emotional signs and symptoms of their response to the dying process through behaviors that equate to saying goodbye or through actual withdrawal. Families need to be educated that such behaviors are normal to the process of dying. See chart 9-2. Grief is the emotional feeling related to the perception of the loss. Mourning is the outward social expression of the loss. Interventions to assist patients and families in grieving and mourning are based on their cultural beliefs, values, and practices. Table 9-2 lists basic beliefs regarding 
death, dying, and the afterlife for some of the major subcultures and religions. Interventions are aimed at providing appropriate emotional support to allow patients and their families to verbalize their fears and concerns. Support includes keeping the patient and family involved in healthcare decisions and emphasizing that the patient will remain as comfortable as possible until death. Interventions for providing psychosocial support are summarized in chart 9-3. Intervene with those grieving on impending death by being with as opposed to being there. Being with implies you are physically and psychologically with the grieving patient, emphasizing to provide emotional support, empathizing to provide some emotional support. Listening and acknowledging the legitimacy of the patient's and or family's plan are often more therapeutic than speaking this concept speaking this concept is often referred to as presence. Nurses facilitate the expression of grief by giving the person who is mourning permission to express himself or herself. Your manner and words show that these expressions of grief are acceptable and expected. An example of therapeutic communication might be, This must be very difficult for you, or I'm sorry this is happening. Table 9-2 Basic Beliefs Regarding Death, Dying, and Afterlife for Selected Cultures and Religions African American Primarily Protestant or Muslim, but there is diversity among different communities belief in afterlife and judgment. Funerals tend to be highly involved ceremonies with defined rituals. Family, friends, and acquaintances of the deceased make an effort to attend. Asian. Encompass several countries and religions, e.g. Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Laotian, Cambodian, Korean, Vietnamese. There is a traditional strong family and extended family with male dominance. Herbal medicine plays an important role. Direct eye contact is, is considered impolite. For Southeast Asians, discussing dying brings bad luck in hospitals and treatments are alien. Such Southeast Asians, especially if uneducated, are likely to avoid visiting terminally ill family members for fear of contracting the disease. The number or character 4 is avoided because it symbolizes death. Funeral and burial customs vary greatly depending on culture, religion, and generation involved. Latino, Hispanic. Many subcultures within this population with diverse cultural variations exist, e.g. Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, South America. Catholicism is the predominant religion, but many people depend on folk healers for treatment of ailments. Death is viewed as a direct result of life. One naturally follows the other. There is an acceptance of death based on religious and cultural beliefs. Family and family life are important, especially regarding deaths and funerals. Expression of grief is open, especially among women. Native American, American Indians. Over 350 distinct tribes in the United States exist with variation in cultural practices. Focus of identity is on the tribe or council rather than on ancestry. Each tribe has its own belief system. Most tribes have the belief that spirits are attached to living things. Indian healers, shamans, are common. 
Family is usually a large extended unit, often including as many as a hundred or more. Family may not want the patient to die at home, but to allow a family member to die alone is also not appropriate. Material possessions often are dispersed before or after death to friends and family members. Bereavement follow-up may not be appropriate because some tribes have a taboo against speaking of the dead. Judaism. The religion encompasses Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed Jews. There is a strong belief in the sacredness of life and one indivisible God. Funerals have two common themes, honor the dead and comfort the mourners. The body must be left unattended until burial, which should take place as soon as possible, preferably within 24 hours. Autopsies and cremation are opposed. The deceased is often dressed in a white shroud and buried in a plain pine box. A seven-day mourning period called Shiva follows the person's death for the immediate next of kin. Because of acculturation to American society, funeral and mourning tradition may vary. Chart 9.3 Best Practice for Patient Safety and Quality Care Psychosocial Interventions for Care of the Dying Patient and the Family Offer physical and emotional support by being with the patient. Be realistic. Encourage reminiscence. Promote spirituality. Foster hope. Avoid explanation of the loss. Communicate with the patient. Provide referrals to bereavement specialists. Teach about the physical signs of death. Ensure that the patient is receiving palliative care with an emphasis on symptom management. A patient's or family's member's, member's pain or of loss should not be minimized. Avoid trite assurance such as, things will be fine, don't cry, don't be upset, you shouldn't want it that way, or in a year you'll have forgotten. Such comments can actually be barriers to demonstrating care and concern. Accept whatever the grieving person says about the situation and remain present. Be ready to listen attentively and guide gently. In this way, you can help the bereaved prepare for the necessary reminiscence and integration of the loss. Storytelling through reminiscence and life review can be an important activity for patients who are dying. Life review is a structured process of reflecting on one's life which is often facilitated by an interview, interviewer. Reminiscence is the process of randomly reflecting on memories of events in one's life. The benefits of storytelling through either method, through either method include catharsis, the ability to attain perspective, the enhancement of meaning, suggest that the patient and family, and family tape autobiographic stories, record memories in a journal, or develop a scrapbook. If the patient does not have enough energy for these activities, familiar objects such as photographs and favorite jewelry pieces can be used to spark ideas for stories. Spirituality is the connection to self, others, the environment, and a higher power, e.g. God, Allah, Spirit. Religion is the formal expression of one's spirituality. Spirituality helps people cope with death 
and contributes to quality of life during the dying process. Therefore, perform an assessment to identify the patient's spiritual needs and to facilitate open expression of his or her beliefs and needs. Although a number of spiritual assessment tools are available, few of them are specific to end of life. People who have been alienated from their religious or spiritual community and have difficulty finding meaning in their suffering or approaching death may have spiritual distress. Possible causes include guilt, regrets, lack of meaning, poor relationships, and fear of the unknown. Acknowledge the patient's spiritual pain and encourage verbalization. Use a family tree to discuss relationships, fears, hopes, and unfinished business. Explore issues related to forgiveness for possible resolution. Hope involves picturing a reality that is not yet present and imagining what a situation might be like. This image sets the direction for patients and their families to provide purpose in life and to help them find the strength to go forward, even in the darkest times. Foster hope for patients and their families by listening and caring, but remain realistic. Do not try to explain the loss in philosophic or religious in the loss in philosophic or religious terms statements such as everything happens for the best or god sends us only as much as we can bear are not helpful when the bereaved person has yet to express feelings of anguish or anger telling someone too soon that he or she has other children to rely on or that other family members need them need them does not diminish the intensity of the grief in fact, doing so can create feelings of anger and resentment toward the nurse because it reflects insensitivity to the patient's emotional pain. Being with remains important as the weeks or months pass and the funeral crisis supports dissipate. The out-of-town relatives leave and friends and local relatives resume their own lives. Consider contacting family members after the death to allow them the opportunity to voice their perceptions of the experience. Family caregivers, who assumed the role of symptom manager in the home, often welcome the opportunity to discuss their experience. Patients near death are often obtunded or withdrawn from the external environment. However, it is believed that their sense of hearing remains intact until death. Conversation in the room and near the patient should occur as if he or she is alert. Caregivers are encouraged to talk softly to the patient and to touch and gently stroke the skin, if culturally acceptable. Although the dying person may not respond, these actions foster a sense of communication between the patient and the caregiver. Bereavement includes grief and mourning, the inner feelings and outward reactions of the survivor. Inform the patient and family about bereavement counselors who can assist them to cope both before and after the death. Bereavement counselors are extremely knowledgeable about the grieving process and can be accessed through hospice's agencies. Any nurse caring for people who are dying or have died should know how to access this resource. Participation in bereavement support groups by people who are grieving a person's pending or past death has been shown to facilitate the grieving process. Being a part of a support group can help people discover that Others have suffered through an experience just as devastating as their own. This discovery makes them more likely to share their feelings with others and work towards some resolution of the experience.
Although emotionally challenging, witnessing the death of a loved one may actually facilitate the family's acceptance of death. Witnessing how ill a person is makes the event real and enhances an understanding of how disease affects bodily function and decline. If death is anticipated, use non-technical language to give the patient and family information about the signs of death. The physical signs are described in detail. Realistic enough to be unmistakable, yet not so graphic as to alarm the listeners. Chart 9-1 describes the common signs and symptoms of approaching death, and Chart 9-2 describes the common emotional signs of impending death. Family and friends who are anticipating the death of a loved one often fear that the death will be characterized by pain and suffering. Reassure families that patients in healthcare settings will be monitored closely for any sign or symptom of distress and that appropriate drugs will be administered as needed. Families providing direct care in the home, including medication administration, are contacted daily to offer assistance with symptom management. The home care or hospice nurse also emphasizes that he or she is available by phone or pager 24 hours a day. Chart 9-4, Best Practice for Patient Safety and Quality Care, Symptom Relief Kit for Patients in Home Hospice. For unrelieved pain, morphine solution, 20 milligrams per milliliter solution, 0.25 to 0.5 milliliters orally or sublingually every two to three hours as needed. For unrelieved dyspnea, morphine solution, 20 milligrams, one milliliter solution, 0.25 to 0.5 milliliters orally or sublingually every two hours as needed. For nausea or vomiting, prochlorpyrazine, 25 milligrams suppository rectally or 25 milligrams slash uh, 25 milligrams per 0.5 milliliters transdermal gel to inner wrist every eight hours as needed. For severe agitation and restlessness, determine if patient is in pain, treat accordingly. Determine if patient is experiencing urinary retention, insert straight or fully catheter. Lorazepam, 1 to 2 milligrams elixir or tablet dissolved in 0.5 milliliters water administered against buccal mucosa. Give 0.5 to 1 milligram every 4 hours to keep patient comfortable. If patient becomes excited after lorazepam, discontinue and contact hospice. For oral secretions or loud, wet respirations, scopolamine, one to three transdermal patches every 72 hours. For unrelieved pain, dyspnea, nausea, vomiting, agitation, or secretions, call hospice. End of chart. Most people who choose hospice care prefer the home to other environments during the final episodes of illness. Although there are exceptions, being surrounded by familiar people and things, having ready access to friends and relatives, and being free from institutional restrictions make the home setting more comfortable and give the person and family more control. If patients are not able to stay at home until death, they should be offered information about the nearest inpatient hospice unit or facility. In these settings, families are allowed to remain with patients. Interdisciplinary hospice team meetings are routinely conducted in both home hospice and inpatient hospice agencies to review the patient's plan of care. It is not always possible to predict the final phase of the terminal process or the development of symptoms of distress. 
To address this problem, some hospices have arranged for pharmacies to supply patients with symptom relief kits by prescription. These kits provide a limited amount of commonly used drugs that are effective in treating symptoms near death. Post-mortem care. Nurses or family members usually discover cessation of breathing when the patient dies. Chart 9-5 list, lists other physical manifestations of death. If the death was in the home and expected, there is no need to call for emergency assistance. If the person was a patient in a hospice program, the family calls hospice. If the, a death is unexpected or malice is, is suspected, the medical examiner is notified. Otherwise, the nurse or physician performs the pronouncement and completes a death certificate. Chart 9-5, Patient and Family Education Guide. Signs that death has occurred. Breathing stops. Heart stops beating. Pupils become fixed and dilated. Body color becomes pale and waxen. Body temperature drops. Muscles and sphincters relax. Urine and stool may be released. Eyes may remain open and there is no blinking. The jaw may fall open. Observers may hear trickling of fluids internally. End of chart. Ask the family or other caregivers if they would like to spend time with the body to come to terms with what has happened and say their goodbyes. Even if the death has been anticipated, no one knows how he or she will feel until the full effect of the event. Some family members may find it therapeutic to bathe and prepare the person's body for transfer to the funeral home or the hospital morgue. Offer families this opportunity if it is culturally acceptable. Before preparing the body for transfer, ask the physician whether an autopsy will be ordered. When the death is expected, an autopsy is not likely. But when the physician or family members do not know the cause of death, an autopsy may be performed. After the family or significant others view the body, follow agency procedure for preparing the patient for transfer to either the morgue or funeral home in the hospital. In the hospital, a postmortem kit is generally used with a shroud and identification tags. Chapter 9-6 describes best practices guidelines for postmortem care. Euthanasia. Nurses are usually in the best and most immediate position to discuss end-of-life issues. This includes assisting in the decision-making process regarding immediate or future needs. To do this, nurses must be knowledgeable about terminology and ethical issues related to death and dying. Much confusion exists regarding the concept of euthanasia, withdrawing or withholding life-sustaining therapy, WWLST, formerly called passive euthanasia, involves discontinuing one or more therapies that might prolong the life of a person who cannot be cured by the therapy. Another term that is sometimes used instead of WWLST is letting die. In this situation, the withdrawal of the intervention does not directly cause the patient's death. The progression of the patient's disease or poor health status is the cause of death. Professional organizations, e.g. American 
Nurses Association, American Medical Association, and religious communities, e.g. Catholic Church, support the right of patients and their surrogate decision makers to refuse or stop treatment, e.g. mechanical ventilation, antibiotics, IV fluids, when patients are close to death and interventions are considered medically futile and or capable of causing harm. The U.S. court system also supports WWLST. Active euthanasia involves a health care provider taking action that purposefully and directly causes the patient's death. Active euthanasia is not supported by most professional organizations, including the American Nurses Association. In the state of Oregon, physician-assisted suicide is legal in certain situations. Table 9.3. Definitions of ethical concepts related to issues at end of life. Withdrawing or withholding life-sustaining therapy, WWLST, formerly called passive euthanasia, an act of omission, e.g. withholding or withdrawing treatment that might prolong the life of a person who cannot be cured by the treatment. In this situation, the withdrawal of the intervention does not directly cause patient's death. Principle or of double effect. And this involves taking an action, e.g. administering an opioid intended to have a good effect, which also has a known harmful effect. This is not active euthanasia. Voluntary active euthanasia, an act by which the causative agent in the death of a patient is administered directly by another. Involuntary active euthanasia, the action to the end of the patient's life is taken without the patient's consent. Physician-assisted suicide. This refers to a practice whereby a physician provides a means, e.g. medication, to a patient with the knowledge that the patient will use the means to commit suicide. Chart 9-6, Best Practice for Patient Safety of Quality Care. Post-Mortem Care. Ensure that the nurse or physician has completed and signed the death certificate. Ask the family or significant others if they wish to help wash the patient. If no autopsy is planned, remove or cut all tubes and lines according to healthcare agency policies. Close the patient's eyes. Insert dentures if the patient wore them. Straighten the patient and lower the bed to a flat position. Place a pillow under the patient's head. Wash the patient as needed. Comb and arrange the patient's hair. Place pads under the patient's hips and around the per perineum to absorb feces and urine. Clean the patient's room or unit. Allow the family or significant others to see the patient in private and to perform any religious or cultural customs they wish. Notify the hospital chaplain or appropriate community religious leader if requested by the family or significant others. Prepare the patient for transfer to either a morgue or funeral home Wrap the patient in a shroud and attach identification tags per agency policy if the patient is to be transferred to the morgue. End chart table. Nurses should be involved in active euthanasia or physician-assisted euthanasia. They do, however, play a major role in end-of-life care by advocating for patients' wishes and ensuring quality symptom management and support at the end of life.
Get ready for NCLEX examination. Key points. Review these key points for each NCLEX examination client needs category. Safe and effective care environment. Assess the patient and family regarding whether they have written advanced directives such as a durable power of attorney, DPOA, for health care or living will. If necessary, teach the patient and family that an advanced directive is, written, is a written document that specifies what, if any, extraordinary actions that person want, would want if he or she could no longer make decisions about care. Be aware that hospice care uses an interdisciplinary approach to assess and address the holistic needs of patients who are dying. Current criteria for Medicare hospice requires a prognosis of six months or less. Psychosocial integrity. Assess the patient's emotional signs of impending death. Assess coping ability of the patient, family, or other caregiver. Assess the patient's spiritual needs in order to assist in planning appropriate interventions such as obtaining clergy. And incorporate the patient's personal cultural practices and beliefs regarding death and dying. See Table 9-2. Provide psychosocial interventions to support the patient and family during the dying process as listed in Chart 9-3. Physiological integrity. Death is defined as the cessation of integrated tissue and organ function, manifested by cessation of heartbeat, absence of spontaneous respirations, or irreversible brain dysfunction. Assess the patient for pain, dyspnea, agitation, nausea, and vomiting, which are common problems at the end of life. Assess for the common physical signs of approaching death as listed in chapter nine or chart nine one. Medications are frequently given to control dyspnea, pain, agitation, and nausea and vomiting in patients near death. See chart 9-4. Common complementary and alternative therapies used for symptom management at end of life include aromatherapy, music therapy, and energy therapies such as therapeutic touch. Best practice guidelines for postmortem care are described in chart 9-6. With Drawing or withholding life-sustaining therapy, WWLST, involves withholding treatment that might prolong a patient's life. Active euthanasia involves giving a patient a treatment or agent that causes death. Selected bibliography. Just kidding. Biotrack. That was chapter 9 in Iggy.